0: In Hebrews 9, actually, start in Hebrews 1, we're going to be in Hebrews 9, but we're going to start with a kind of overview of the book. As you're turning there, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we rejoice, even as we proclaimed in song earlier, that beneath the cross of Jesus we do find a place to stand. Not because of our merit, not because we are here this morning because we look good, not because of any good works or deeds that we have done, by the grace of Jesus, by the grace of God alone. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, we find a place to stand. And we rejoice in that, Heavenly Father. We thank you even this morning for missionaries like the Gonnermans who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Even through these simple conversations uh, in a park in Japan that have eternal consequences. Heavenly Father, we pray that even this morning, as we rejoice with them over this conversation, that we would realize that we have a responsibility here to take the gospel to Altoona, Iowa. We may not have been called far away, and yet that does not diminish the necessity that we take the gospel to where we are. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us a burden to reach Altoona with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even this morning, as we look at this passage and we rejoice In the blood of Jesus, may we be burdened to take this good news out from this place to the world around us. We pray that even in this hour that you would be honored in all that is said and done. I pray that you would give me boldness and authority to preach the word of God with clarity. That your name may be lifted high. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we jump into the message this morning, I do want to thank you for sending Krista and I to the IARBC State Conference this past week. Uh, it was an excellent conference. Uh, Sam Choi, a pastor from Minnesota, uh, preached as well as uh, Dr. Craig Keck from over at Faith. Uh, it was actually my first time hearing uh, Dr. Keck, and, and he's, at, he's the one who took uh, Dr. Newman's place, kind of, and so it's kind of a connection here. Uh, so I was excited to hear him, and, and he, was, he was excellent. was excellent. Uh, it was a very good time. It was a sweet time of fellowship. We um, got to, to meet many other pastors, many new pastors in the area. Uh, and so that was, that was good. It was encouraging. Uh, they had it up at camp, and so we were able to take actually two of our kids as well. Avery and Theodore went with us. Uh, and so they had faith kids up there to watch the kids while we went to the sessions. And uh, it, was a really, it was a really neat time. Uh, it was very encouraging. Um, Sometimes you go to things like that, and, and it's almost like, you know, as part of the IABC, oh, we have to do this, we have to go. You know, there's a business meeting and all this, and you know, I had school this week and other things, and um, you know, there's a sense in which you you, you like a, diff- a change of scenery, and yet you're not thrilled about the change to your schedule. And yet I must confess that it was needed. It was it was relaxing. I enjoyed the conversation. Um, It was thrilling to my soul to hear about what God is doing in the IARBC, what he's doing around, Uh, and so we rejoice in that. And so thank you for sending us, thank you for praying for us, and um, we'll do it again in a month or so at the GARB conference. And so uh, the Lord is doing neat things in our association. 1995. I wonder if you remember where you were in 1995. 1995 I was six years old and uh, the only thing I remember about 1995 is that it was a great year for Disney movies. In 1995 um, Pocahontas came out, Uh, 1995 Toy Story came out, the year before in 94 uh, Lion King had come out uh, and The Jungle Book had come out and so you know as a six-year-old, our family had a VCR. I mean, I was, I was living the good life. There were some good movies. And I remember Pocahontas, even though technically it's like a Disney princess movie. As a boy, it was secretly one of my favorite because it's not really a princess, right? There's soldiers and Indians and fighting, and it's exciting. I love that movie, and I remember specifically there was a, a scene at the beginning of the movie that really kind of captured my attention. And uh, it's it's as the John Smith and the settlers first arrive and they pull up on land and John Smith jumps down onto this new world. And immediately he takes off into the tree line and he climbs up on a mountain. And what he's doing is he's looking for for a high point, somewhere where he can kind of get the, the lay of the land. He's in a new place. He wants to know what's all around him. He's trying to get above the tree line. I just remember as a kid, there was just something so exciting about that. You know, he's running up there in his armor, and he stands there, and he looks so powerful as he's standing there looking out. So we think about Hebrews this morning. Before we continue our series in Hebrews 9, I kind of want to get the lay of the land, if you will. Last week we were in Hebrews 9.15, and we got kind of an overview of, of the last few chapters where we've been in Hebrews. Yeah, I think it's good for us to back up even a little bit more this morning, and before we really dive back into Hebrews 9, let's go back to the very beginning. Let's get at an overview, a lay of the land of where we are in Hebrews, where we've been, what have we seen. And so we're going to kind of climb up a tree and poke our heads over the tree line before we get down to the forest floor. As you may remember, the theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews is really a book that's built around five warning passages. There's five warning passages throughout the book. It's really these warning passages that take the surrounding teaching of Jesus' superiority and then it calls the readers to respond to that, to live according to that truth. And so you start back in Hebrews 1, and and Hebrews really starts with a bang. The author of Hebrews does not, you know, kind of ease into it. He grabs your attention from the very beginning. In the very beginning of Hebrews, the first four verses says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Right? That, That was trustworthy. He spoke by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, It's even more trustworthy. His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the words of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrews is not trying to hold anything back. He's not trying to, you know, hide his message until he pulls you in and then he's going to pounce on you. Gotcha. He wants you to know right from the beginning where he's going. What is the point that he is making? It is that the Son of God is superior to everything else. He proclaims the supremacy of Jesus as God's Son. The Father spoke by the Son. The Father created through the Son. And it is the Son who has made purification for our sins. Who has who resurrected from the dead. Who has been seat, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he's been given a name that is superior to all names. And this is a powerful attention-grabbing, opening. Look at the Son of God. Look at his superiority. Look at his greatness. You get to chapter 2 of Hebrews, you come to the first warning passages. The first warning passage. You know what the first word of Hebrews 2 is, therefore. Based on the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the greatness of our salvation as seen in Hebrews 1, therefore, we must pay attention, we must not drift away. He says, therefore, we must pay attention, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. See the glory of the Son of God. Pay attention to what he has said. Do not drift. Chapter 2 goes on to further develop this great salvation. And here the author of Hebrews really focuses on Jesus' incarnation and his ascension. And the focus is on Jesus as Savior. In fact, look with me, if you will. Um, Really, the end of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And who is this one? This one made lower than the angels? This is the Son of God? But he's not used his name yet until this point in the book who is this one that we have been talking about, this one who has not yet had everything made in subjection to him, but has been made a little lower than the angels, namely, Jesus. This one, the Son of God, who who the author of Hebrews has been talking about, is Jesus Christ, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom, and by whom all things exist, Back to Hebrews 1, right? The son through whom God created. He's making it very clear here. This one, this one who I've been telling you about, this one who is superior, this one who's the son of God, this one through whom Jesus, or through whom God created, this one who made purification for our sins, this one who's seated at the right hand of God is none other than Jesus Christ. It was fitting that he for whom and through whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So we see there Jesus as Savior. He's the Savior who has been made perfect through suffering, and a Savior who has risen victorious and been crowned with glory and honor. In chapter 3, we are first introduced to the idea of Jesus as high priest. And it's here that the author of Hebrews focuses on Jesus' faithfulness. And he goes on to proclaim that Jesus is faithful as Moses was faithful. It's a comparison. But then he goes on to say that unlike Moses, Jesus is worthy of infinitely more glory than Moses. Again, returning to that theme of Jesus' superiority. Jesus is Superior. The rest of chapter 3, into chapter 4, it's really the second warning passage. Based on this great Savior that we've seen in the first two chapters of Hebrews, based on his great faithfulness as established in here in chapter 3. Based on these truths, do not fall away. Again, look to Jesus. See his superiority, his supremacy, see his greatness. And be faithful day in and day out. Do not fall away. As you get to the end of chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 5, we're really starting to dip our toes here into the heart of the book. It's here that the author of Hebrews really uh, begins to introduce the idea of Jesus And his high priestly ministry. He ties it back to Jesus' incarnation and his suffering. And he calls his readers to hold fast to their confession. The end of chapter 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, as we saw back in chapter 2, one who did suffer. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. In every respect, he's been, uh, respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Then that gives us confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. Again, into chapter 4, 5, verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And then at the end of verse 10, we're introduced to this name, Melchizedek. Melchizedek. What we see here, before we really dive into Melchizedek, is that Jesus is a high priest who is able to sympathize. He is faithful and he understands and that gives us confidence in our faith. Moving forward, the the author jumps into Melchizedek. Jesus understands our weaknesses and he's been called by God to be a high priest just as Melchizedek was uniquely called to be a high priest. To be a priest by God. It's here at the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6 that we come to the third warning passage of the book of Hebrews. It's a warning against apostasy. And again, the idea here is based on God's faithfulness. Because God is faithful, do not fall away. And if you're following the, the, the argument of the book of Hebrews, it's essentially this. Look at what God has promised. Look at what God has provided for you in Jesus Christ. Look who he is. And be encouraged. Do not fall away. Stand firm in your faith. Look what God has done for you. Chapter 7 returns to the idea of Jesus' role as high priest. And really, here he he dives deep into this comparison between Jesus and Melchizedek. And what this comparison really does is it shows the uniqueness of Jesus' ministry and ultimately showing the superiority of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is unlike all the other priests under the Old Covenant. And therefore, Jesus provides what all the other priests under the Old Covenant could not provide. Jesus is specially, specifically called by God, and he has a ministry that will never end. Chapter 8 builds on the superior, or superiority of Jesus' ministry by showing, showing the superiority of the New Covenant. We have a superior high priest and a superior New Covenant. And they go together, and unlike the old covenant, which which revealed the problem of sin, but it offered no solution to it. Unlike the old covenant that proclaimed, you are a sinner, you have fallen short of God's glory, and you cannot measure up. But it offers no solution. The new covenant that comes with Jesus' ministry brings salvation. Salvation. It is a work of God from the inside out. Not that you must change your heart, but that God will change from the inside out, giving a new heart. Chapter 9, where we find ourselves then, builds on the idea of Jesus' high priestly office and the new covenant that marks his ministry. As our high priest, Jesus is not limited. He's not limited by time, his ministry will never end because he will never end. He is eternal. He's not limited by access. Unlike the tabernacle where the people were, were held back, Right, there were two curtains and high priests, priests could go in the first curtain but in that back curtain to the Holy of Holies only one person could go only once a year. And even in there, the presence of God is somewhat veiled. But Jesus goes into the very throne room of heaven, in the very presence of God. He serves in the very presence of God. His access is not limited. His ministry is not limited in effectiveness. Because his blood does not just cover sins, it cleanses us from sin. It purifies our conscience. It is Jesus' death and his blood that's the topic, really, of Hebrews 9 and 10. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, in the middle of this passage in Hebrews 9. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 22. But going forward, at the end of Hebrews 2, we'll come to the fourth warning passage of Hebrews. And then we'll come to the famous Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 12 is a call to run with endurance and purpose. And the fifth warning passage is found, there, is found there. And then in Hebrews 13, the final chapter in Hebrews focuses on the greatness of God. And so be encouraged. Sometimes through the book of Hebrews, can feel like you're just slogging along. But hopefully backing up and seeing the big picture, kind of getting over the tree line, has helped you to see where we are in the book. Look at who Jesus is. From Hebrews 1 through Hebrews 9. And then moving forward, what that means for us. So here we find ourselves in Hebrews 9, verses 16 to 22. Coming down from the trees back to the forest floor. And really, in here, we'll see two parts in our passage this morning the necessity of death, and then the power of blood. The necessity of death and the power of blood. First thing we see is the necessity of death in verses 16 to 17. Verse 16 begins, For where there is a testament, there must also by necessity, also of necessity be the death of the tester. The word for gives us a clue that this is a continuing thought. Last week we were in Hebrews nine fifteen which is really the the summation of all of this, For, for this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. What does that death accomplish for us? The redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The death of Jesus Christ accomplishes redemption. And what that means is that those who are called may receive what they are called to receive. So it's really this, this, these last four words of that first line of Hebrews. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. It is that death that the rest of Hebrews 9 to 10 really dives down in. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to shed his blood? Hebrews 16 and 4, where there is a testament, there must also by necessity be the death of the tester. The word testament there is the idea of will. In fact, if you're using an ESV, I think they use the word will itself. uh, Where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. The author of Hebrews here is, is kind of giving a uh, a very practical illustration to explain a spiritual truth. You see, we may not understand the language of covenants, but it's using language that we do understand. We understand the language of a will, right? We understand what a will is. In fact, just this very week, my mom called me, and she said, we were talking, and she said, hey, by the way, do you want these paintings that are yours? I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. What paintings? My parents are in the process of trying to sell their house, and so they're packing up and going through things. And she said, well, you've got, you've got three paintings of apostles that your great-grandfather left to you when he passed away. I had no idea. My parents had just been displaying them in the house like they were theirs, but they were mine the whole time. But those paintings did not become mine until my great grandfather passed away. I remember it. I was in second grade. I remember when it happened. In order for that will to go into effect, there must by necessity be the death of the tester. The tester is is the one who, who writes and signs the will. And that illustration would be my great grandfather. He sat down, he had someone write a will for him. He went through it with him and said, I want Josh to have these three paintings. And then he signs that will. He's the tester, it is his will. And that will did not go into effect until he died. He's using this language of a will. We understand that. To help us think through something that we may not so easily understand, the idea of a covenant. The argument that he's making here is that a covenant works in the same way. Just as for a will to go into effect, the person who made the will must die. So, for a covenant to go into effect, the one who made the covenant must die. For a testament or a will, verse 17, is in force after men are dead. Right? We understand that. It has no power at all while the tester lives. Speaking of paintings in my parents' house, I have uh, recently, within the last few years, I've started trying to collect uh, all the different books that people in my family have written. In fact, in my office on the, the shelf there, like, right under the window on top of it, is all these different books. I've been trying to collect them. All. I thought it would be neat to just kind of collect all the, the books that family members have written. And uh, in the course of that, it's almost turned into getting, what's the word, like relics of Bob Jones history, I guess. <laughs> I've got plates now, and I've got books of, you know, 75th year things and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and in my parents' house, there hangs this, this painting. And it's not the most beautiful painting you've ever seen. It's just a painting of Bob Jones University. But it's painted in the early 90s. And so it's the way that I remember the school growing up before all the updates that they've done now. And I've told my dad, you know, when you put together your will, I want that painting. It's just it's neat. It would go great right above my books. (laughs) I've already got a place picked up. But I have no right to go into my parents' house and to take that painting off the wall and bring it back, right? It's not mine. Even if my dad puts that in his will and he has said, okay, when when I pass away, Josh gets this painting. As long as he's living, that painting's not mine. I have no rights to it. Even though my name's on it one day, it's not mine now. If I were to go into a court and say, no, I want this painting. Look at this will. My dad said I can have it. The judge would say, you're foolish. Your dad's right here. It's still his. He's still living. That will does not go into effect until he has died. A testament is in force after men are dead. The will has no power before death. We understand this, do we not? We get this whole concept of what a will is. Now here's where the author of Hebrews really kind of brings it all together. Right? 16 and 17 he's showing us death is a necessity. If the new covenant were going to go into effect, Jesus must die. He is the tester And the new covenant is the will. Going on into 18-22, what he really shows here is the power of the blood. Maybe you're not so sure about this argument that he's making. Well, here the author of Hebrews shows, well, even the first covenant was established by blood. That's what he says here, verse fifteen. Therefore, even the first covenant was dedicated, the idea that was put into effect, it was not established without blood. Blood. Blood is the idea of death. Blood had to be shed. Exodus 24, verses 3 to 8 is where we really see this. Jim did an excellent job this morning in walking us through the book of Exodus. I do not envy his... Responsibility of going through whole books of the Bible like that at a time. That is a lot of work. But here in Exodus 24 is where we really see this. The covenant here is confirmed. Starting in verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins And half of the blood he threw against the altar, Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words." Here we have the establishment where this covenant, this old covenant, is put into effect. And what do you find? Blood. Death. He took the blood of goats and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people Think passages like this in in scripture, we often just, you know, glide right through. All right, the big idea, the covenant's established, that's good, keep moving. But pause and think about that for a second. Think how violent that was. Imagine standing there in the crowd of people as as Moses takes this, this massive thing of blood and throws it out onto you. You are drenched in the blood. It's a powerful picture. Death is necessary to cover my sins. This animal died so that I didn't have to. Its blood is literally on my hands. Likewise, he sprinkled the blood on both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry. In fact, not only was blood shed to establish the covenant, but but one of the things we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, one of the things we know from Sunday school is that blood was shed in the regular administration of the tabernacle. It wasn't just at the establishment of this old covenant that blood was shed, but ongoing Week after week, year after year, blood had to be shed for the sins of the people. In fact, earlier in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9.13, the blood... The blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. This must happen over and over and over again. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sins. Blood must be shed, for the wages of sin is death. Sin demands death. And God's principle, as we see here in Hebrews 9, a principle established back in Leviticus 17, verse 11, is that blood must be shed before sin can be forgiven. Sin demands death. Then look to Hebrews 9.14. I just read Hebrews 9, 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And if the shedding of the blood of bulls and of goats... Is that covered sin? How much more will the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the superior Savior that we have seen since verse 1, the one through whom the worlds were created, the one through whom God spoke, the one who made purification for our sins, who rose from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who sits in the very presence of God, how much more will his blood purify our consciences? Notice what it says there. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness of sins. It doesn't say that forgiveness can come by merit. Forgiveness comes by one way by the shedding of blood. There's an interesting phrase I want to point out before we close this morning. In verse 20 here, really looking back to Exodus 24, as Moses takes this blood, as he sprinkles it on the covenant, as he throws it on the people, what is it that he says? This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. It's the blood of the covenant. Turn with me to Matthew 26, if you will. Each month as we take communion, we look at either this passage or sister passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink of it, all of you. Why? For this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And Jesus shed his blood so that you could have eternal redemption. Going forward into the end of Hebrews 9, a passage which I I had time to, to tack on the end here, but we just were out of time. But the end of Hebrews 9 is really a comparison of the old covenant and the new covenant. And in this comparison, you see similarity, the necessity of sacrifice. And yet there's a difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the tabernacle and the presence of God where Jesus serves. One is a shadow. One is real. The difference is the power of the sacrifice. It's Jesus Christ. I think it's appropriate to close by turning to Romans 8, verse 31. Here in Romans 8, Paul speaks of the hope that we have in Christ, starting in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Then you come to verse 31 to 34. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's what we see this morning. That God gave up his son for us. Blood must be shed. Our sin demands it. We are separated from God, condemned to hell. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to shed his blood for us and thereby to give us an eternal redemption. And so brothers and sisters, like Paul, I say, how much more? Is there anything that can separate you from the love of God? If God sent his own son to die for you, do you think that God will give up on you before he has completed what he has promised? No. What he has begun, he will complete. He is a faithful God, and the promises that he has made will be fulfilled. So we rejoice. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There is no one who can stand before God and say, look at him. He's a sinner. He's not worthy. Because your advocate sits at the right hand of the Father and he stands up and he says, look at my blood. I paid for his sin. I died for him. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Nobody. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ, Jesus, is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Shall any of these things separate us? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long with regard as sheep as a slaughter. So, is there hope? In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How much more Look what God has given you in Jesus Christ. Who shed his blood for you. Do you think that if God has done that, that he will not complete what he has promised? With the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus shed his blood for you. I don't know if it has struck you yet, but next Sunday is Easter Sunday. That means today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Passion Week. As I was thinking about this week, how appropriate that we begin such a week focusing on the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice and the necessity of Jesus' death. He must die. The cross is not a sign of defeat. It is a sign of victory. Because the cross was necessary for our eternal redemption. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Have you ever thought how how odd it must feel to an unbeliever to walk into a church and we're singing songs about death? The songs we sang this morning, the, the blood of Jesus Christ. It sounds odd. Why are we singing about death? Why are we singing about blood? We don't rejoice in the cross and sing of the blood of Jesus because we're a morbid people. It's because it is by that blood that we have been redeemed. And in that we rejoice. We rejoice in the cross because it declares to us God's love. And rejoice in the blood of Jesus Christ because it secures for us our salvation. And so brothers and sisters, rejoice. This week, as as we head into this week and I don't know what you will face. I don't know what lies ahead. But as we head into this week and we focus on the Passion Week, I don't know if you have a reading plan maybe where you kind of walk through the Gospels this week or look at where you are in the Passion Week, preparing for Easter Sunday as Jesus has risen from the dead. But this week as you meditate on those things, Rejoice in the cross of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in his blood that was shed for you, that brings eternal redemption. If you're here this morning, and maybe it does sound odd to you as we're rejoicing in blood and we're talking about death. But if you're here this morning, I would love nothing more if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If this does sound strange to you, I would love the opportunity to sit down with you to open a Bible and to tell you why it is that we are so excited, why it is that this week in which our Savior was crucified, why it is so special to us, why Easter is something we look forward to. I would love to sit down with you and tell you about Jesus Christ this morning. Even as we sing our closing song, we're going to sing At the Cross, number 296. Even as we're singing that, if you have any questions or concerns this morning, I don't want to force you into, de- into a decision. I just want to answer your questions. I want to point you to Jesus Christ. So even as we sing, I would encourage you, come forward and seek me out. And we'll go out and we'll sit down in my office and I will open a Bible and I will seek, do my best to point you to the cross and to answer the questions that you have. If you are here and you are in Christ... I encourage you to rejoice even as we sing this song at the cross and we meditate on these things that we've just talked about. Rejoice in the salvation that is yours in Jesus Christ. How much more? What do you have to fear? Look what God has done for you in Christ and rejoice in faith knowing that he will complete what he has begun.